When did you realize that we were in trouble? When did you open up your eyes? What did it take for you to sit up and listen? Why does it always cost our lives? Eyes? Oh, wow. Oh, 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 oh. Yeah. Welcome to the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. This is episode 28, and I'm your host, Alan Wolin. The song you are hearing is called Outrage and was written and performed in 2020 by today's guest, Dr. Joel Brown. One of the things I love about being on Twitter is that I get to discover and connect with really interesting people from all over the world. I used to have to travel to do that. I discovered Dr. Brown serendipitously on Twitter about three weeks ago and was immediately drawn to his passion and to his clarity of expression. I direct messaged him out of the blue and said this, Joel, I might as well just set my Twitter to auto-like your tweets. Save time. He responded enthusiastically, and I invited him onto this podcast to share his ideas. He graciously accepted my invitation, and here we are today. Now back then, Joel had only about 1,000 followers on Twitter. In just a few days, his audience grew to over 20,000 people, which is pretty explosive growth in Twitter land. After a year and a half of tweeting about Thomas Sowell's ideas, my audience is only about one-tenth the size of Joel's audience. So something he is saying must really be resonating with people to cause audience growth that fast. I encourage you to check out Joel on Twitter. His handle there is at JoelBrownMD. So what is Joel's story? Joel is originally from Jamaica, and in 2001, his family emigrated to England, where he studied medicine and is now a practicing doctor there. Joel considered himself mostly a man of the left for most of his early adult life, and he ascribed to many of the general attitudes and beliefs prevalent among the Western intelligentsia. But these beliefs were mostly inert and simmering in the background of his life as he pursued other interests, like music and songwriting, getting married and having children, as well, of course, as his main career in medicine. When 2020 rolled around and events in America began to unfold, in particular, the death of George Floyd during a police arrest, Joel found his passions inflamed and his revolutionary spirit kindled. He gravitated to the Black Lives Matter movement, which began in America and sought to translate its tenets across the pond to British soil. He began to discuss the events in America and what they represented in a larger context, with friends and family in England. Okay, fair enough. But what makes Joel's story different or unique? Joel began to notice that the more involved he became in the ideas, attitudes, and emotions of the Black Lives Matter movement, the more anxious, depressed, and angry he became. 
He began to argue and fight with friends and relatives. He distanced himself from people who didn't agree with his views and adopted a polarized view of life. You were either with him or you were against him. Joel sensed that something was very wrong with what was happening to him emotionally, and this realization led him to pause, to rethink his attitudes, and to question everything, and to revisit his family and religious roots. Joel had a radical transformation in the way he sees the world, and this is what he has been expressing on Twitter this past year. It is the insights he gleaned from this transformation, which he shares with us on Twitter, and which have propelled him into my orbit, and now into yours. I am very intrigued with Joel's story for two reasons. One is that it reminds me a lot of Thomas Sowell's story. Many people don't know this, but Sowell was a dedicated Marxist until his early 30s. His senior thesis at Harvard was on Marxian economics. His master's thesis at Columbia was on Marxian business cycle theory. His first scholarly publication in the March 1960 issue of American Economic Review was on the writings of Karl Marx. Even after getting his PhD in economics at the University of Chicago under his mentor, Milton Friedman, He remained a Marxist. Sowell said this in his 1985 book about Marxism, quote, Marx took the overwhelming complexity of the real world and made the parts fall into place in a way that was intellectually exhilarating, end quote. Friedman didn't seem to mind that one of his star pupils believed in the tenets of Marxism. In fact, I suspect he was tickled by it. In his letter to the Earhart Foundation nominating Sowell for a large grant, Milton Friedman said, Sowell is a socialist, but he's too smart to remain one for long. Let me repeat that line for maximum effect. Milton Friedman said, quote, Sowell is a socialist, but he's too smart to remain one for long, end quote. So what was it that led to Sowell's intellectual shift? In a 2018 interview with Dave Rubin, Sowell tells us with a single word what changed his mind. Here's a clip from that interview. One of the things that I found out that was sort of amazing about your history, you you briefly mentioned it right before we started, you were a Marxist at one time in your life. Most people will find this hard to believe, but it is true. But it's not that unusual. Uh, Most of the the leading conservative thinkers of our time time, uh, did not start off as conservative. You had a couple like uh, Bill Buckley and uh, George Will. But I mean, Milton Friedman was, was, a, was a liberal and a Keynesian. Uh, Hayek was a socialist. Ronald Reagan was so far left, at one point the FBI was following him. You know? Uh, so, uh, the, so there's a huge movement uh, from the left to the right as people get older. Yeah, I'm, I'm well aware, as I mentioned to you earlier, as a former progressive, I, I understand that, that movement in the yeah. modern sense. Do you, do you remember sort of what you were thinking, what appealed to you at that time about Marxism? Yes, I mean, there was no alternative being discussed. Uh, my first job was as a Western Union messenger. 
And uh, I would come home on some nights, I would take the Fifth Avenue bus, which cost all of 15 cents in those days. <laughs> but I figured I'd splurge now and then. And I would drive, it would go all the way up Fifth Avenue past all these Lord and Taylor and uh, all these fancy uh, places. And then I'd cross 57th Street past Carnegie Hall and down Riverside Drive, and that was the, the, sort of the Gold Coast area. And then as I came across this long viaduct and that turned into 135th Street, suddenly there were the tenements. And I wondered, why is this? I mean, it's so, it's so, it's so different. And, and nothing in the schools or most of the books uh, seemed to deal with that. And Marx dealt with that. Uh, so it's, it's, it's like winning an election when there's only one person running. So then what was your wake up to what was wrong with that line of thinking? Uh, facts. <laughs> well, you know, we could probably end the interview right there. Yeah, facts. Yeah, there you and, go. And, yeah. and, when Sowell says that facts changed his mind, it sounds funny. And we all laugh at the utter simplicity of his answer. But there's a very profound and deep meaning conveyed in that one word. What Sowell is saying is that reality did not align with the ideas in his head. That things were happening in the real world which contradicted those ideas. And that Sowell was faced with a stark choice. Does he stick with the ideas he loves or does he side with reality? You know, I think there's a really important insight here. We all have strongly held beliefs. It's just human nature. And what are those beliefs really based on? Are they based on the real world? Or are they based on our vision of the way we think the world ought to be? That's the fundamental question we each need to face. The most basic question we need to grapple with is this. I believe very strongly in X, but what could happen in the real world which might cause me to change my mind about X? And if you can't even imagine something happening in the world which would change your mind about X, then chances are that your strongly held belief is more like an article of faith than it is some form of real knowledge. As regular listeners of this podcast will know, I was an intellectual history major in college, and I got to read books written by the greatest thinkers in human history. But towards the end of my time in college, I discovered one philosopher whose ideas resonated with me more than any other I had explored. Most of you listening will probably have never even heard of this man. Now, before I tell you who this guy is and what his main idea was, I want to caution my listeners not to be driving a vehicle or using a sharp knife while listening to this. I would hate to be responsible for any accident caused by the sudden onset aha moment you are about to have. His name is... Drumroll, please. His name is A.J. Ayer. Who? Exactly. In 1936, A.J. Ayer wrote a book called Language, Truth, and Logic. Now, I don't recommend this book for the casual reader. It's definitely not bathroom reading. But the main idea of the book is that the only ideas in life which are worth entertaining are those ideas which are possible to falsify through some experiment or experience in the real world. 
Ayer did not believe that propositions such as there is a God were worth speculating over. Why? Because there is no experiment you could conduct, no experience you could even imagine, which would prove that God does not exist. Therefore, don't waste time thinking about such matters. Stick to the real world. Stay grounded in reality. And always subject your beliefs to this test of falsification. Always ask yourself, what could prove me wrong? This type of attitude keeps your mind on its toes. Now, I've never seen Sowell mention A.J. Ayer in any of his books. But I would guess that Sowell read Ayer, and probably also Karl Popper, who was another well-known positivist. That's what this empirical philosophy is called, positivism. But even if Sowell was not familiar with Ayer or Popper, it's clear to me that he champions the intellectual tradition of positivism, which is a profound dedication to empirical reality over ideology. For me, the belief in socialism or communism is the perfect example of this dynamic. I can totally understand why someone would believe in these ideologies. They sound terrific on some level. In episode 23, I introduced you to the magical words of Edward Bellamy from his 1888 utopian classic, Looking Backward. I get why the ideology of socialism is so compelling to the young and idealistic. But what I don't understand is how a belief in that vision can survive even a cursory study of the history of the 20th century. So many societies have attempted to create in practice the theories of people like Marx and Bellamy. And not only have all these experiments failed, but they have failed miserably and spectacularly. The Soviet Union, China, Vietnam, Cuba, Eastern Europe, Venezuela, North Korea, how many more examples does one need to see before one can admit, um, well, maybe all the centralized planning isn't what it's cracked up to be? So I'm fascinated when I hear about someone who was once passionate about a certain set of ideas, but then undergoes a radical transformation in their thinking and ends up in a totally different place. That's what fascinates me about Sowell's intellectual journey, and also about Joel Brown's journey, who is today's guest. But before I introduce you to Dr. Brown, I have another very special guest for this episode. This is someone you are probably not expecting to hear from. I have invited her onto the podcast because she too has undergone a dramatic transformation in her thinking over the past few years. And her story hits really close to home for me. She is an accomplished attorney, a homeschooling mom of four girls. She is a writer with her own substack called Strap on a Pair. Who is this mystery guest and why does her transformation hit so close to home for me? I'll tell you why. It hits so close to home because her transformation took place literally inside my home. Ladies and gentlemen, 
boys and girls, soul fans of all ages, I would now like to introduce you to my wife, Priyanka. If you've been wondering these past 27 episodes, who in their right mind would marry this soul nerd? Well, you're about to find out. Priyanka Wolin, welcome to the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. Thank you for having me. So the first question I want to ask you is, what is it like being married to the number one Thomas Sowell podcaster in the world? I mean, (laughs) do you get recognized by strangers on the street? Do you get offered free coffee when you go into the donut shop? Do you get the best table at every restaurant? I mean, just, you know, tell the listeners what it must be like. Oh my God, I can't take it. I just can't take it. I get uh, asked to uh, go on coffee dates all the time and they want to pick my brain about how I found this genius of a husband. (laughs) Okay, well, thank you for that. So the reason I wanted to have you on the podcast today was today's episode is about people shifting, dramatically shifting the way they think about the world. Our guest, Dr. Joel Brown, tells his story. And I know that you have your own story about a dramatic shift in your thinking over the past few years. And uh, I'd like you to, you know, share with us what what happened with you and and what's been going on. Well, I guess I would say I was never really affiliated with any party, which comes as a surprise to some of my friends who pretty much assumed I was a Democrat. I never registered as any, I was politically homeless. And I think over the years, I have leaned more towards the left and it progressively more and more towards the left. But I think there came a point in my growth where I started to question a lot of the views that I held and it came during the sort of the pandemic. It, it came during the pandemic, really, where I think a lot of people felt a tremendous amount of anxiety around current events. If you recall, which I'm sure you will, we, there were points where we couldn't even talk about the things that were happening. And um, I was just upset a lot and I was angry a lot. And I think it took me kind of taking a step back from engaging on a political level in terms of what I was listening to, reading, that I started to think differently. I started to open myself up a little bit more than what the prevailing narrative was, if that makes sense. Sure. I remember, yeah, you're right. During uh, 2020, 2021, it was very difficult for us to have any kind of deep conversation about politics or current events, because you you would always get very angry with me. Now, has my doing this podcast shifted your views about Thomas Sowell at all? You're doing the podcast has not shifted my views on Thomas Sowell. I think in the beginning, you're having this podcast was very challenging for me because I felt like people would assume that your views were my views since we're together. And my views are not, you know, my views are very different. There are lots of things that I think we agree on. And then there are lots of things we disagree on. So I wouldn't say it's changed my point of view. I think it took me getting 
to a place personally to be able to really look at myself and look at my experiences and question the stories I was telling myself about those experiences, if that makes sense. Now, the other day you said to me, you know, Alan, I'm not the only one that has dramatically changed their thinking over the past few years. You too have dramatically changed your thinking. And at first I was like, what is she talking about? I've always been a Thomas Sowell fan. I've always been sort of conservative uh, as far back as I can remember since I started reading Ayn Rand back in high school. And then you were like, oh, well, what about when you were such a big fan of Thomas Friedman's The World is Flat and you were, you know, hyping open borders and this is the future and this is where we're going to be and this is terrific. And I was like, oh my God, she's right. I used to really, yeah, tell me about that. I mean, what was that, you know, what was your experience of that whole period uh, in my intellectual journey? I think. I think it's so interesting. And I think that this is actually a a good thing. It's a sign of growth. Like if you're going to keep the same opinions your whole life about life and, and not be swayed any which way, because you're like, this is my point of view and it's not going to move. I think that is stifling. But when we first met, yes, you have been, I would say you were kind of fiscally conservative, um, not socially I remember a time when Thomas Friedman wrote that book, The World is Flat, and you were so moved by the book. And we used to get into these heated arguments about whether, I think that was around the same time that the European Union was formed. And you were saying that there's going to be a time when the world is going to have no borders, no passports, and how wonderful that's going to be. And I remember you and and at that point, I would say I was probably more conservative in my thinking because I thought, okay, this is not, I I don't think that that's realistic. I think humans are innately tribalistic and I can't see a time when that's going to happen. And I didn't even, I wasn't even sure if the European Union was going to really be a success story, which I think remains to be, still remains to be seen. But you were really um, pushing for this open borders, uh, every, you know, people will be able to go wherever they want, free movement. And it was a very different perspective than I think you have now. Absolutely. I mean, I think back, you know, I, I bought probably a dozen copies of that book I in the hardcover, that. if I remember, and I gave yes. them out to friends. Mm-hmm. People mm-hmm. must've thought I was absolutely losing my marbles. Um, first of all, probably no one read the book. No one reads a book that you give them. I mean, it's very rare. But the fact that I was doing, you know, giving so much money to, you know, Thomas Friedman and giving out these books. I mean, I really was in a different mind space back then. There was one other. Well, I think you were idealistic. I don't think it was like, listen, I think if yes, in a in a perfect world, would would it exist where people can move freely? And but I think that would require a perspective of shared ideology, values, a shared system, which we don't have, right? And I think that you're wanting that was coming from a place of like believing that it was possible for people with very, very different uh, value systems and political systems could be able to move in this way. Now, getting back to Thomas Sowell for a minute, the other day you were working on uh, an essay and I sent something, an essay from Thomas Sowell to you. And you said to me, oh my God, I mean, Thomas Sowell really got so much right. 
that it's just unbelievable. You were you were saying like there's almost no point in me writing this essay because he seems to have said it all 20 years ago. Yeah. Like I, I was getting the sense you were really appreciating the wisdom of Thomas Sowell in that moment. You were sort Definitely. of on fire. You were like lit up by yeah. Thomas Sowell. Well, because I think when you look back and you realize he was writing this 20 years ago, 15 years ago, and we're still in this place and the things that he was concerned about have not only come true, it's like uh, the avalanche, right? And so when you look back on some of his writings, whether it had to do with charter schools or whatever, you realize, wow, um, it's this is this is still happening and now it's a bigger problem than ever so yeah i mean i definitely think there's there's very little to be said because he said so much when it comes to some of the topics that i'm interested in like education or what have you but what i think is really interesting also is that you know you asked me before what 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 were the changes that were happening for me and I remember like some of my friends who also had similar points of view and similar leanings, we would not be able to discuss some of the things that we were feeling. And once in a while, we would test the waters. Like one of us would say something to kind of test the waters to see how the other person reacts. And then it would open up like, oh my gosh, I feel that way too. And we can't have these conversations out loud. And I think that's sort of the tragedy of what's happened, which is you can't have real conversations anymore because it means when you open up yourself and, and you speak some of the your truths or some of the things that you feel, you get branded as a bigot or you know whatever. Three years ago, we literally could not talk about anything serious. It would always end in a fight. It would always end in anger and recrimination. And I said to you, I said, let's just not talk about anything anymore. Let's just talk about the kids. Let's talk about the schedule. Let's talk about the meal planning. And But now we can talk about everything. So something has really dramatically shifted in our home. Yes, for dramatically. sure. I, well, I think it was, you know, my inability to look at certain things that were happening without feeling like I'm a traitor if I don't go along with this. Do you know what I mean? I do, but I feel like you also you 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 were deeply, you know, believing it. You were deeply committed. I was. To those yes. No, I mean both. I think it's both. I think I was deeply committed to it, and I think also at the same time there was this like self-doubt questioning, which is like, well, if I think this way, if I question this, does that mean I am a bad person? Does that mean I am morally bankrupt? Does that mean I don't care? And I think that, you know, you and I had this conversation about how the, um, you know, the Democrats have sort of, they've cornered the market on morality, right? And it's impossible to question some of the tenants without then without then questioning whether the person is moral, whether the person has ethics, and whether you're a good person if you can believe this, if that makes sense. Now, the the question that I'm most focused on right now is when one you know holds beliefs that one later realizes were um, mis grossly mistaken, 
Mm-hmm. And one says, you know, I was wrong. I was really, really wrong. Does one go through a process of just saying, oh, well, I got it wrong, but you know, now I know better and I'm not going to get it wrong anymore? Or does one say, there must be something dramatically wrong with the way I think about things that led me to get that so wrong? And I need to fix that mechanism in my mind so that I don't keep getting it wrong about new things ad infinitum. You know, I look back at my, when I used to believe in the, you know, the world is flat kind of stuff. And I realized that I didn't really have a coherent worldview at the time. And a really good solid argument that was nicely presented was enough to sway me in almost any direction. And I realized that now I have to guard against that. And I have to take really good arguments and really convincing presentations with a dose of cynicism, a dose of skepticism, because I know how easily I can be fooled. Mm-hmm. And I, I continue to get fooled. I'm not saying I'm never going to get fooled again. Yeah. There were things, there were things that went on in the past two years about COVID, for example, that I was fooled about. I really believed certain things that I no longer believe. So I'm not out of the water. I'm not out of the woods. I mean, yet yeah. I'm getting fooled. Um, yeah. But I didn't realize at the time how easily fooled I could get. Now mm-hmm. I know. Now I know. Mm-hmm. At least I know now. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a little bit closer. Do you do you do you see some sort of, you know, shift in the way you view your own reason and and logic and intellect? Yes, I do. I think for me, when you were saying that, the thing that came to mind was this like quote that I heard in law school. It was by I forget which judge, but it's this famous quote, and it's um, "Good facts make bad law." And I think for me, for a long time, I was swayed by good facts and I wanted to change the fundamental fabric. And I thought that these were the ways to change it. Let's just get rid of everything and start new and start fresh. And I think that was one of those examples of like good facts make bad law, which is, you know, yes, there is a problem with, um, whatever there's a problem with in society, right? But does that mean that we just throw everything out and start over? And why do I think I know a better way to start over when this has been debated and and um, discussed by people for years and years and years, much brighter, much smarter, much more capable than I am? And one of those things that I remember thinking about was when people were saying, you know, abolish the police, that we need more um, community services in place of police to deescalate. And I was so wrong about that because what did that do? It just led to more violence in and more crimes in places that really needed a police presence. And you hear about it from people that actually live in these areas where they were affected very negatively by this defunding the police. So that's just one example that I could think of where I feel like I, you know, I, I got, I got swayed by the facts at the time or at even some of the facts that I thought were facts, which are debatable. But I think generally it's the same as you, everything you read and hear, you really have to question. I think another example would be on like social media where people post 
things that are happening around the world or post um, quotes from people. And there was a time when I was reposting without really questioning, what is this a part of and what am I reposting? Right. And it could be something that you don't, your views don't align with that you're posting just because it's a nice quote. So it's really questioning the stuff that's out there for yourself before you take it on, before you wear it, before you're like, oh, this is the truth. Okay. Let's end it there. Thank you you know, for coming on the podcast. I know that uh, we, dinner's on the stove and the kids are hungry. So let's get back to uh, dinner. Um, plus I want to get Joel Brown on the podcast. So uh, I love you. Thank you for coming on the podcast. We'll talk later. Thank you for having me. Now, before I invite Dr. Joel Brown onto the podcast, I'd like to share with you three of the statements he made on Twitter, which caused me to invite him on the show. I was going to just read his tweets, but I thought it would be more interesting if I asked Joel to read them himself in his own voice. And he graciously agreed. On the subject of fighting for justice, Joel Brown said this, You aren't fighting for justice. You are depressed and brainwashed into thinking the world is against you. Get some therapy. Get some perspective. Get out more and go win at life. On the subject of woke insanity, Joel said this. At the height of my woke insanity, I genuinely couldn't differentiate racist from non-racist people. All whites were racist by default until they could demonstrate otherwise. I remember doing racist litmus test themes like police brutality to see if they had the racist view. Shaking my head. On the subject of leftist extremism, he said this. This is why I'm talking about my story. I'm not here to milk the attention of a massive audience. I actually prefer obscurity. I just want to spotlight how destructive leftist political extremism is and hopefully help others heal in the process. Dr. Joel Brown, welcome to the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. Thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciated your invitation to join you, and I'm looking forward to see what this discussion, uh, you know, will uh, will you know do for us both, really, and your audience. So, Joel, I discovered you randomly on Twitter. Someone, I guess, had retweeted something that you wrote, mm. um, and it was one of those, you know, instant follows where someone says something that's just so right on the money. You th- you think, well, before I even investigate this guy, let me just follow him and see what else he has to say. <laughs> um, you, you had about a thousand followers at that time. And I reached out to you and I jokingly, I, I direct messaged you and I jokingly said, I might as well just set my Twitter to auto like all of your tweets. It'll yeah. save me a lot of time. And yeah. obviously that was a joke. Uh, you responded and, you know, we kept in touch since then. And in the course of just a, a few weeks, or maybe even a few days, days, your Twitter following went from a thousand to over 20,000. Yeah. Now, which which is quite a, a, an amazing uh, meteoric rise for Twitter. Uh, you know, I'm compared to my 2,300 followers, you know, that I've worked a, a year and a half to amass, you're 10 times the size, you know, in only a few weeks, let's say. 
Mm-hmm. Um, something you're saying is really resonating with people and causing them to retweet you, follow you right away. And you've got some really big followers, people who have uh, listeners. I call them listeners. I don't like to call them followers because no one's following me. You know, they're just listening to what I have to say, maybe if I'm lucky. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got some listeners who have uh, audiences in the millions. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, when they retweet you, you're reaching, you know, millions of people. And, you know, there's, there's something about what you're saying that's really resonating. You know, I went back and looked at the, your, your tweets historically, and you talk about a lot of different subjects. Yeah. Um, you talk about meritocracy, parenting, uh, racialization, gender politics, the patriarchy, rewriting history, following the science. I mean, you have a, uh, you know, a wide spectrum of interests. And, you know, I wanted to, uh, you know, read some of the things you've said on Twitter and and just have you you know, fill in the the gaps, let us know, you know, what you're thinking. Um, The first thing I'd like you to tell us about is your, your journey. You know, Mm -hmm. apparently uh, from what I've gleaned from your history, you came into 2020 somewhat of a, of a leftist activist. Yeah. But you didn't end 2022 that way. Could you tell us a little bit about what happened? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. I love the introduction there and the way you kind of uh, paved the way for how how I can introduce myself to to your listeners, really. Uh, And I think it's worth giving you guys a a bit of a backstory, and I'll be as brief as I can, really. So um, I I was born in Jamaica uh, in the sort of 80s, um, and this was a time, 20 years after Jamaica became independent from Great Britain. So Jamaica was finding itself politically, trying to adjust to, um, you know, I guess being no longer being under directly under British colonial rule and uh, my mother British dad Jamaican grew up in in a in a very a very cons- fairly conservative Christian home um you know became a Christian at quite a young age and then around the age of 16 uh, my parents decided to relocate to the UK so uh, that's where I uh, around around 2001 actually so that was in- interestingly uh, I think that was the year of following the 911. Uh, the 9/11 attacks um on you know on the twin towers adjusted um to to the uk life I had to adjust fairly quickly ended up you know going to university to study medicine and and left medical school and uh, started training as a doctor it's helpful just to paint some of that so you can understand my journey and how that informed some of my my views so essentially at that stage in my life i had as i said a fairly conservative political viewpoint um on, on, on pretty much most of the kind of moral things you can think of as it relates to gender politics sexuality all of that uh and that survived and and that those views survived university bearing in mind that's often where many of those views are challenged you go to university and you find a whole new way of looking at the world um and finding yourself questioning those things um so for me that happened much later in 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 life so um after finishing um and working as a junior doctor getting married having two children that's when i kind of had a crisis of worldview crisis of faith crisis of identity to be honest because there was a sense in which I was trying to figure out, okay, so how, who am I, um, you know, as I navigate this world, I've had some really good opportunities, some really good experiences. I mean, you know, I've, I've you know, got into medical school and I'm a, I'm a doctor. I had at that point had a few incidents 
that I experience with people, um, and, you know, people who we, you know, we racialize as white that were um, unpleasant. And I remembered finding myself in, initially, I didn't see it as, oh, the way to best explain this is that this person has racist ideas about me. But I found as I got more absorbed into some of the, 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 the culture and the way that I, I would see many of my, you know, black friends, particularly ones born here in the UK, there was a sense in which that was becoming more acceptable to to pro- project um racism as the as the sort of natural most default explanation for these uh, any negative interactions with anyone racialized as non-blacks whether that was white asian and so i found myself starting to feel some sort of struggle with my race and starting to feel okay so i'm now having some negative experiences here and there and is my race a problem am i am i fitting into culture or, or am i feeling like i have to assimilate um you know to push away uh, any anything that would make me see me make me be perceived in a, in a negative light whether associated with my race and so i started this process of this this tension um and and, and it became it, it sort of escalated really over, over time over 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 periods of years so if we just fast forward because i don't want to bore you with a lot of history um you know i would say i had what I would describe as a, a a crisis of identity and a crisis of faith. I felt this sense of, um, you know, perhaps my faith itself. Well, I had this this idea in my head that perhaps Christianity itself is just a uh, a religious tentacle of the imperialist project of Europe. Um, of course, denying any kind of Christian history uh, in in Africa that preceded, you know, the the colonial the colonization of of Africa. But I, I think it was much more convenient to the narrative to say, well, toss that away. Um, Britain and this entire sort of Western project. Is, is 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 essentially a, a, an entirely oppressive regime, uh, and black people are kind of uh, at the mercy of of this of this of this system. And so uh, I found myself in this in this space, therefore very open, much more open to the um, to the invitation, the sort of uh, invitation of kind of the leftist rhetoric of, of course, we um, you are oppressed as a black person, regardless of whatever you've accomplished. And of course, the way to get around that is that, of course, black people, some of us are successful, but the majority of us are poor. And that's because of racism, white racism against black people. Um, and so 2020 comes. I'm at that point already very, very initiated into um, this, you know, fairly radical leftist viewpoint. My views, most of the con- uh, conservative views I had around any of those um, topics mentioned, including sexuality, gender, uh, ideology, had very much uh, moved towards a, a very leftist position. Um, and, and I was, yeah, I remember just finding myself just you know so many relationships i had with people including my own family became very strained because i had this very hard view course with you know with black lives matter and that erupting on the scene in 2020 there was this sense in which okay i've got to use all of my creativity i started writing songs about you know racism and the oppression and it needs to be uh we need to be able to uh band together to uh to you know to, to address this so i'll pause there to give you a chance to kind of reflect on some of what i've said if you've got any questions to clarify anything like that well, I could see how your your mind had been primed for a leftist worldview. 
Yeah. Um, and what what I what I noticed here, here was a tweet that you sent out uh, a, a while ago. You said, "I've talked about my own previous mental health journey, not yeah. to lay blame at anyone else for the challenges I faced, nor to earn sympathy. I did it to reveal the consequences of leftist extremism on race, where yeah. it can lead your psyche to be obsessed that you are constantly oppressed." So, so you, you frame this as sort of a mental health issue. Tell, tell us a little more about that. Yeah. And on reflection, like with anything you say on Twitter, there's, there's a sense in which people can take it in multiple directions. I'm aware as a, as a physician, as someone that, um, you know, I think we've, we've got to be careful about the way we talk about uh, mental health and, and sometimes there are stereotypes or ways in which we talk about it that uh, are necessarily confusing about it. So, what I what I wanted to uh, sort of I guess explain in that in that tweet is that there was a sense in which a significant contributing factor, or or I think the means by which or the triggers by which um, I found myself succumbing to uh, pretty severe and crippling anxiety was the sense in which. Um, especially in 2020, I became so overwhelmed. There was this constant barrage in the media of, you know, of, of these, um, you know, black lives that are just being gunned down in the streets. Bear in mind, this is happening, uh, you know, 3,000, 4,000 miles away from me. Uh, this is, of course, not denying that there hasn't been a sense of some uprising or some sense of frustration about, um, you know, uh, racism or concerns about racism here in the UK. But much of this was was, was uh, translated from America. And there was a sense in which a lot of that, I found it overwhelming. I had to switch off and log off. I couldn't watch the news for periods of time. I just became, I would find myself, and I, I'm not exaggerating, I would sometimes find myself just crying, just crying and without even understanding why and feeling the weight, this vicarious burden of we as Black people, we are being oppressed in this way the police are not all friends um and and your white friends that you think you trust secretly hold some kind of animus or some kind of not even necessarily hatred some kind of indifference or just don't want you to win at life and i think that was what i wanted to point out in that tweet that when I talk about it, I'm not suggesting that um, everybody who was on the left is depressed. I'm not suggesting that um, there aren't other things that were contributing to that season of, of depression. I'm just being honest about what I think were some of the triggers for me, uh, in, in the, especially around the anxiety and depression. You wrote the mixture of anxiety, depression, and anger felt like such a heavy weight on my soul. At times, I just didn't want to be here. I pushed away real friends on the basis of whether they recognized the common enemy or not. Did, mm -hmm. did they believe we were in the final war on white supremacy? You yeah. talked a little bit in another tweet about how that sort of the racism issue or the, or the George Floyd issue was almost a litmus test yeah. that you would use to see if people were on the right side yeah. morally. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, again, I, I remember having conversations on Facebook and, you know, hey, what what do you think about uh, what's happening in the States? Because firstly, there was just this silence amongst mostly 
you know, white friends. I just didn't see them talking about it, tweeting or whatever. And it just that in, that in itself incensed me. There was a sense of how could you not think this is the most important thing to talk about? What is wrong with you? So there was already that sense of uh, grievance with, with the silence or they didn't change their profile picture to black as I think that came later on. Um, but I remembered this feeling of, I need to be able to know if friends that I've had for 15, nearly 20 years of living in the UK, do they really care about Black life? Do they really care about me? Or is it was that all just a front? And so there was this sense in which, it, yes, the, the urgency of what happened. And of course, I want to make it very clear. I think it's um, it's any human being and and I well I could say that for myself surely that his and I still stand by this that his death was tragic and I would never want that to happen to anyone. Um, and regardless of the ways in which I'm disappointed that there has been a narrative to try to underplay or to demonize uh, those involved and 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 I know that we can have a debate around that but I think at the time I was I wanted them to say. The, whatever the narrative was, this was a racist killing. His life was squashed out because he was black. And that affects me. And you need to agree or affirm the grievance that I feel about it for me to be able to trust you. And I think that that is, is so dangerous. And, and, and I, and my, me talking about it and seeing others come around that post and go, wow, yeah, this is exactly what I've, what I what I felt, I felt so you know pushed away by people who I thought we were okay. I thought we loved each other, but somehow this my particular perspective on this particular shooting or this political issue or this or or I support this particular president became the you know that's it. That's we draw we draw the line in the sand at that point, and 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 the friendship became you know undermined. You wrote about anger in a tweet. You said, anger was my drug of choice, but it could never satisfy. It's not mm. like there aren't really terrible and unjust things that happen every day in the world, but the woke cult strategically placed a magnifying glass on highly politicized events that created so much emotional paralysis. Yeah, yeah. And the, I mean, again, I think with that tweet, I just wanted to shed some light on on anger. I think anger is a legitimate emotion. It oftentimes I've heard it said that it's a secondary emotion. When you feel anger, there's something else. You feel somebody hurt you and you feel angry. Okay, so the hurt is the primary emotion. And oftentimes if you look deeply enough, there is a, a you know a primer. Um, but I've I found that the the state of mind that that um you know that I was in all the time it felt I just had to this this anger I needed more of it I needed to be outraged at something I needed to have another hit I, and and this is not uh, this is this is I think this is a you know a, a very accurate description of of how I felt and I could remember that when I describe it as a drug there was a sense in which I I felt I needed it um because they the, the the machinery of of the the ideology is you know in many ways was fueled by needing something else to be out you know outraged about we have to then clamor about this and scream about this and 
express this outrage to be able to convince people this is true. And every single opportunity helps to build the narrative that there are, there are two classes of people who are the oppressed and the oppressor, uh, whether that, whether we're talking about racially or all the sort of other quote unquote intersections that everybody who's uh, deemed as normal in society or normalized in that way are the oppressed or sorry the oppressor class and then everyone else who's deemed as you know sort of uh, somehow marginalized they are the oppressed and and yeah and i think i think again i anger is an emotion that like i expressed there it, it, there is something somewhat comfort not comforting there there is a sense there is a sort of short-term satisfaction when you feel angry and you express your anger because you feel oh it's almost like you have this sense in your head that okay this is righteous indignation against something unjust and it feels good even if you're not solving anything just expressing that anger and it can be dangerous if you're not careful to think well actually what's the evidence that what you're standing for or even how you are going about expressing that anger uh, are you damaging or hurting people in the result well actually if that doesn't matter all it is is that you think that you have a cause, you think that you have to be angry. There's a sense in which you can so rapidly destroy people, yourself, relationships around you. Yeah, there was, in, in the summer of 2020, there was this sense that as long as your anger was righteous, yeah, that anything goes. Yeah. You yeah. know, if you wanted to burn things down, as long yeah. as you had a good reason yeah, that it was yeah. okay. I remember when when the George Floyd thing happened, I remember everything became very polarized when it came to race. Yeah. I remember thinking to myself, my God, we are going to be, we are on a trajectory to be talking about race for the next 50 years. Whereas mm -hmm. before that happened, you didn't talk about it that much. You just, you just went about life and, you know, you lived your life, you had your family, your career, um, mm -hmm. and you didn't think about race all the time. And we started thinking about race, 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 race all the time. Mm -hmm. And you called it, um, it was a, something you tweeted about. If you teach children their race is their primary determinant for either success or failure in life, mm -hmm. they will have an unhealthy obsession about race for the rest of their life, derailing any chance of success. Yeah. It's sort of a race obsession. It became a race obsession. Would you would you agree with that? I totally agree. And at the time I couldn't see it, but I think that that's the that's the danger um of this and why it's so important to to talk about it because I feel that the what happened is that it exploded across the world this this sense of of race being, as you said, something we need to completely obsess about uh, to, to the point where we have to be able to uh, label people as, are you an ally or not? And what do you need to do to perform, to demonstrate your allyship? And there's a whole host of virtue signaling that's going on. And you've got institutions, corporations, and it just became, it became, and I, I'll tell you this, even as someone who was still very much caught up in the left, I remember at times in that mindset feeling like there's a whole host 
of that virtue singing that was happening where I was kind of like, how much of this, how many of these corporations really have a vested interest in any of this? Or are they doing this because that's the thing now to do, to be, to appear to be, um, you know, on, on the right side morally of this race issue. Um, and, you know, and I, and I've got children. And so you mentioned earlier that I talk about a lot of things and I talk about parenting and I talk about, um, you know, just how, when I reckon with the weight of how I was in the last, you know, over the last few years, uh, the, and the ideology and the kind of victimhood rehearsing that I was doing. And, and, you know, my children are, you know, six and eight and I do, and I have wrestled with it and I thought, you know, gosh, I don't, don't want them to to have inherited any essence of of um of victimhood you know um and and of course there will be some of it of course i didn't you know um i wasn't extreme in the way that i would talk uh, to them about it but i did feel that i had to sit them down and have this talk you know you're black and that the, you know there are some people who are out to get you because of that and and while that may well and that's the thing i'm not denying that there are some people, you know, for instance, the KKK exists, or there are some organizations that have some, you know, definitely have radically racist views and and they are very much in the minority. And, you know, but there was this sense in which what I was trying to reflect in that, in that uh, tweet really about how do we move forward? What are we going to um, you know, do for that next generation, because unfortunately, I know that this is more of a, an American thing, the school system, you know, there is this sense in which there is this racialized indoctrination happening. And there are some concerns, are we going to end up, you know, causing black children to, to be raised even at the youngest age to just completely embrace this victim narr- narrative, and this assumption that all white people racist until proven otherwise and then white people are just sort of again rehearse this idea from a young age that somehow i have this immutable white privilege and black people need to feel i need to feel sorry um for having any kind of success in life because it's it's not it's not because of my hard work it's because i'm just privileged you know, you know these these ideas are, are potentially on unhel- well are very unhelpful for young people to have to harbor uh, and then live the rest of their life obsessing about that and potentially derailing any kind of real success and um and bet and, and even more important than just success. I'm not just talking about monetary success here, I'm talking about being able to live a fulfilling life, um, have uh, you know, sustainable, beautiful relationships with people from different backgrounds, diverse backgrounds. Uh, and I think that a lot of this undermines the the chance of that. Thomas Sowell said, quote, our children and grandchildren may yet curse the day we began hyping race and ethnicity. There are countries where that has led to slaughters in the streets, but you cannot name a country where it has led to greater harmony. Wow. So I just want to say, for instance, I'm grateful to you and this podcast because I had heard of Thomas Sowell. the irony is, though, not significant. The, the time I was introduced to him was videos that were shared in leftist circles to basically clown this man as some kind of, um, I'll, I'll spell the word that was used because it's not an appropriate word at all, as a C-O-O-N. And I hate that word because I was introduced to that word uh, in in a way to deride and to to essentially um, you know speak extremely prejudicially about any 
black person who didn't abide a leftist narrative, who had conservative or libertarian views, even though uh, Thomas Sowell himself didn't uh, didn't um, describe himself as a conservative. He didn't particularly like that name, though many of his views did lie on, on more conservative on the, you know, the conservative side of the spectrum. Um, he, he felt he was libertarianism was probably more accurate, although, again, he didn't agree with all positions on libertarianism. But I found through your podcast and and through even just preparing for this interview, an opportunity to to revisit some of the videos that I saw. And my goodness, um, I now see how interestingly it's been said by yourself and some others. How much were you influenced by Thomas Sowell? I can say at the time I didn't see it as strongly, but having revisited and looked at some of the, have looked at quite a few. Uh, you know, sort of different videos and also just uh, just read some articles. And I thought this man really was onto something. And um, and I'm grateful now to be able to to say, yes, I, I do affirm. I think he did and and has, you know, I think he's contributed, um, made a massive contribution rather uh, to, to intellectual thought um, that challenges some of this, uh, some of the ridiculousness of where things have, have gone on with the extremes of leftist ideology. And we, we should certainly be grateful to him for the contribution he has made. I have a very good friend who uh, used to uh, call, whenever I would quote Thomas Sowell, uh, they would say, oh, that Uncle Tom. Yeah. You know, and with those two words, they could completely write off 50 years of scholarship and yeah. 47 books and the countless articles and interviews. And and yeah. since since then, they have really come around to uh, what Thomas Sowell has to offer. It, it, let me give you an example. Uh, she was writing an essay on a certain subject, and I sent her a Thomas Sowell article. And she said, you know, after I read that article... I realized, what's the point of even writing my essay? Thomas Sowell said everything that needed to be said 20, 30 years ago. I mean, why am I reinventing the wheel? Just read Thomas Sowell. And that's why I created this podcast. He got wow. so much right over yeah. so many decades on so many subjects. Yeah. So, okay. So you, you set us up here. This is how what you used to think. So what happened that you know caused a seismic shift in your trajectory in your development you know how did you get from there to here yeah um and that's a great question and that's something that i've um to be totally honest i've i've felt the need um to you know to to shed some light on because like like you mentioned right at the start this there has been this sense in which there's been this explosion. My my, you know, Twitter follow count went from a thousand to it's now twenty three thousand. I, I mean, I didn't even think that was possible. I genuinely, I've been as shocked as you or anybody else, even more shocked. Um, and like you said, I'm grateful that you said that something resonates. But I know that I wanted to to bring some, you know, some some clarity because there will be those who will be like, oh well. You know, is this guy just trying to grift um, conservative audiences because, oh, well, it's it's the new thing to say, um, oh, I'm, you know, I, I'm now a conservative or I'm no longer conservative because the left is bad. And I, I don't care. I'm honestly, I'm not, I think that the, the tribalism between the left and right, I, I actually consider myself uh, a centrist with, with certainly views that, um, uh, you know, could be seen as traditionally, 
in, in the right, but there are also views that I have there in the left. So this is not a sort of, oh, the, the left is bad and the right is good. Um, what I really am talking about is the extremism on the left that um, I've, I've got left-leaning colleagues or people on the left that have the same concerns that I do about the extremes but can't express it because the cost of that is too great. It'll be deemed as you're a sellout to this to the team. So it's the tribalism of the extreme and the fact that right-leaning uh, extremism gets called out all the time, but left-sided, very it's it that's not the case. So to go back to answer the question more directly, well, what happened for me? And I think that this hopefully will help to legitimize, you know, um, my stand and my testimony. Um, and I and I will say that my grandmother um died in 2019. She was an Anglican uh woman. She had a, a faith that really informed her life's legacy. She um, had a story that I heard about her around the time of her death that really moved me. And I was upset that I didn't know this before. But in in the 60s, just shortly after independence, Jamaican independence in 1962, so, so around 65, six, between that and 68, she became the principal of a particular high school in Jamaica. That was a boarding school now being converted into a government school. And the school hosted students who were the children of expats from the UK who were working in Jamaica, civil servants working in government. Most of them were Brits, white Brits. When Jamaica became independent, they were all returning to the UK and the school was no longer going to be able to sustain itself financially, economically. So the government took over and the view was now to try to recruit more students. She wanted to make sure, she meaning my grandmother wanted to make sure that students from the local area that were poor, black, you know, um, you know, children were able to get a chance to get into the school. And she she really um, you know, put forward that to the board with some resistance, because of course, at that time the school you know, many of the board were just a bit concerned about the reputation of the school and they had their reasons. And I think that some of it was also the sense in which the school was primarily to serve the sort of a kind of a rich, it was more of a class issue. And, and I would even say it's reasonable to say there was a race issue as well, because the majority of the students were white. She was, a you know, someone that said, actually, for, for me, I just feel it's right. It's the right thing to do to, to help these children. And she and she did that. And by virtue of her doing that, the school opened the doors and many of the children in the community were able to get an education. And years and years and decades down the line at her funeral, many of the children from the different year groups all came down dressed in beautiful purple clothes to honor her legacy. The legacy of her being so passionate about everybody having a right to be edu educated, and um, and and of course grateful for for her contribution in that. And I remember just exploring and hearing from others telling this story about how key her faith was was to that, and her just believing the truth that you know every every child deserves an opportunity regardless of their race regardless of the background deserves an opportunity for opportunity for an education and and i re i remember thinking she was able to do that um motivated by her faith motivated by the fact that the truth matters 
and and didn't need to compromise truth or invent or create enemies out of people that she was able to do that with those simple things and there are others who i now interestingly at the time would have viewed them as enemies so if you don't support um this idea or this this particular sort of ideology you're somehow you're, you're not really part of the team that's going to make a difference to the world the, the utopia we want to build requires you shift your entire way of thinking and abandon truth and abandon um tradition and abandon any of these things and actually it was a there was a sense in which the restoration of my own faith which which i didn't really jump in, jump into here which was disintegrated through all of this 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 period because for me the idea of god just became untenable i just thought well there's no point um and maybe christianity and all this other uh this kind of religious religion was probably the the problem itself uh while i'm not again i will acknowledge that religion has played a role of course in in, in some in some unfortunate circumstances and situations around around the world and in history but again it was this sort of uh this extremism and this this sense in which i felt i had to completely divest myself of my faith um and and i had to adopt these new ways of thinking and being and doing in the world to be able to see see justice uh, and so i think as as i started to reflect on on my own on my own faith journey that helped me to to uh to demystify and 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 clear up um the sense in which i was starting to see so much so many of the people who who had a, who had a faith basis for their their beliefs whether it was on the issue of abortion and the importance of acknowledging the sanctity of life in the womb or whether it was those who felt a sense in which they were committed to what they believed the bible had to say about marriage or gender any of these issues there was a sense in which they were just demonized as bigots out the gate you know there were these people were just against um where we want the world to be and and i and i started to become frightened at the way in which the world is 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 going and this ideology is running away with and turning you know people who i believe are you know good um you know well meaning people uh into villains against their own family and friends who hold these views and that's some of 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 what it's really hard to say this all in a in a podcast and i'm sure there's more i could say but that's the crux of it if i'm going to be really really transparent with you so what i'm hearing is that you were experiencing anxiety anger depression from a lot of these worldviews, and you started to look back to your faith hmm. for clarity. Yeah. And when you rediscovered it, you started to see a lot of these issues in a new light. Yes. You so it, it wasn't it wasn't that anything particular happened. Yes. That converted you um, mm-hmm. or any particular issue. It yeah. was more like you were listening to the internal compass of your mental uh, harmony and you were saying something's off in inside of me. And you started to look towards the, you know, your religious tradition and say, okay, what's, what's the bigger picture here? What am I missing? Is that accurate? That, that is accurate. And while you've said that, but I also want to say, and I've said this on Twitter as well, and I think it's important to uh, reiterate it here. I also recognize that the path I took, 
I, there was a sense in which the end justified the means of how I treated people, how I excluded those who I thought should be labeled as racist because they they happened to be white or whether they were black and they just were, I could deem them as Uncle Tom's because they were just, they weren't on the wave. You know, those people I hurt, there was a sense also as well, a recognition of, of, of I, I need to make it right. I feel, I could feel that I hurt people. I isolated myself. I distanced myself from the church that I was a part of because I didn't feel that they were doing enough as it relates to addressing the issues of, of racial disparity or, or, or police brutality or whatever the, the, you know, the issue, the buzz was at the time. And I, and I, and I also want to acknowledge, you know, here that I, you know, I do have a lot of, I do carry a lot of remorse and, and sorrow for for the ways in which um, I, I, I treated people. And I, I'm not just at all just thinking, oh, well, I can flip a switch and just be like, okay, well, that was me and that was, and, I'm, and this is who I am now. No, I, I, I really hold that and hold that. And I've reached out to many of these people, not all, you know, many of these people. And I've tried to say, look, I'm, you know, I'm really sorry. This is this is why I was thinking this way. And I'm, I've, you know, sought to to reconcile it. And most of them have, have been very, um, you know, uh, gracious in, in, in replying to me. So Thomas Sowell said this, quote, the sins of others are always fascinating to human beings, but they are not always the best way to self-development or self-advancement. The moral regeneration of white people might be an interesting project, but I am not sure we have quite that much time to spare. Those who have fought on this front are very much like the generals who like to refight the last war instead of preparing for the next struggle. Mm. End quote. Powerful. So what 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 is, you know, you, you talk a lot about, you, you know, you've tweeted about abortion, yeah. about disrespect of men, you know, the, yeah. the, the war between the sexes. You've talked about feminism, um, the gender and sex obsession, the glorification of drugs. And I mean, you obviously have a a very big uh, picture of a lot of the problems that are going on yeah. in, our, in our society. You, you said this, the glorification of gang culture, drug selling, pimps and prostitution in so-called black music is such a moral disgrace. Justifying this as art imitating life is even more reprehensible. None of that has served us well, and it should be utterly condemned by all without reservation. Yeah. And the key part of that phrase, without reservation, because um, I remember very much in the kind of leftist space, there was a sense in which we can't take responsibility for, for the music going in that direction because we need to lay blame. Okay, well, it's the it's the white producers. Or you know, Kanye West got in trouble for this, blaming other groups, other ethnic groups that have suffered tremendously and dismissing their, you know, their, their history of, of harm, all because it's, it's again, easy to blame them for exploiting, you know, black people uh, for, you know, in this way, using their, and, and it's, it's, that's the reason. Hey, I'm not, I, I'm aware that there is a complex nuanced discussion about the contributing factors and, and perhaps who can take responsibility for the music that's been put out. And that's why the secondary tweet to that, which probably didn't go as viral, was me acknowledging that this happens in pop music and the, the glorification of, of, 
of behavior and, and lifestyle, uh, maladaptive, maladaptive uh, you know, lifestyle choices uh, you know, abounds in a lot of music. So this is not me going, oh, it's just black music. So I want to make that really, really explicit. Um, but going back to it, I, I do remember there was a sense in which you couldn't criticize any maladaptive choices that black people made based on personal responsibility. So there was a sense in which, okay, these choices uh, emerge from the sort of uh, the crucible of black suffering that's imposed upon them. So for instance, black people in the ghetto, they have poverty and, uh, and the drug problem. And so the music that they write about, they're just telling the story of the life they've had to live and the struggle they've had. And there is a sense as an artist, as a creative, I can appreciate the value um, or, or the point, the, the creativity of just being real about life and what you've experienced. But there's a difference between telling that story. And some of them, to be fair, did this. I felt that some of them were better at telling the story and not miss, not glorifying it, but just saying, hey, I went through this. I did this. I felt I had to. But hey, I've, I've gotten out of that. And that was called like conscious rap. That wasn't as commercial, but the rap that was very much you know, had center place was the raps, raps that were like, hey, yeah, this is what I'm doing. I've got my holes. I've got my this, that, the other. And I'm just like, I can appreciate, I'm not trying to malign any particular rapper, but I grew up listening to a little bit of um, of Biggie Smalls when I had a chance. I mentioned that I grew up in a, in a very conservative home, so we weren't allowed to listen to secular music. So, you know, I had to sneak out and listen to that at, at school or other places. And I remembered a lot, a lot of people said I looked like Biggie because, you know, it's you know, very similar features. And I, I've heard from that he is of Jamaican descent. So maybe we, maybe we're even related. Who knows? But I remember just listening to his his raps and feeling uncomfortable, feeling like I, I, I like his creative ability. He's really skillful. He speaks about women in in such um, you know disparaging ways. He promotes uh, a lifestyle that I've never lived, and I don't see as as a black lifestyle in that in that sense at all. I don't see these things as things I need to embrace. So I think that tweet again. The something I really wanted to say that we can all say that those elements. This is not a condemnation of Black music. I, I enjoy most of the music I create. Sounds is, you know, acoustically is very much draws on the influences of music that have informed me. So gospel music, jazz, soul, R&B. So, you know, that's, that's the music that I particularly mostly enjoy. So I'm not against Black music. I just so we can condemn the music that I think embraced what we do not need to embrace um and we don't need to call this urban or black and, and, and celebrate this to appear, somehow to be able to retain the sense of oh yes this is this is us embracing blackness i i reject that you remind me uh, a lot of catherine beerbel singh who was who joined me on the podcast two episodes ago um okay i, I do you know who she is so yeah we've ha- we've actually had a conversation uh on twitter because i shared she helpfully, um, you know, thankfully shared one of my tweets to her audience. And she has, I think, about 187,000 people following her. I hadn't, I didn't know about her prior to her interaction. So I've read about her and I thought I was quite impressed. And I think she's of Indian Jamaican heritage, if I'm not mistaken, when I've d- done a bit of reading. Anyway, she's reached out to me and, um, 
she had mentioned it publicly, so I'm not saying anything that she, that uh, she you know uh, wouldn't want me to re- you know to reveal. But she has invited me to come down to her school uh, in in London. So we're just going to set up a date for that to happen at some point in in 2023. You should definitely check out before you go. Check out the documentary about her, and she yeah. talks a lot about rap music and mm-hmm. how it, children shouldn't be let anywhere near it because of the negative uh, effects of it of the ideas in it but you met now you mentioned that you were an artist uh at the beginning of this episode i played a little bit from your song outrage and to close the episode i'm going to play the whole song mm-hmm. could you uh that that was written in uh, 2020 yeah before you had this sort of intellectual transformation yeah um so could you you know, set up the song a little bit. Tell us a little bit about the the message of the song and what you were feeling when you wrote it and sang it. Absolutely. So I wrote the song as an appeal to white people. Um, and I, I I wanted to challenge the rationale behind this, what I thought was this sort of late stage kind of awareness, because a lot of what I was um, kind of encountering was, you know, why people kind of going, oh, oh gosh, so we're so upset that this has happened to either George Floyd or some of these other, uh, you know, you know, people who died um, at the hands of the police. And there was a sense in which there is this incredible, um, you know, problem with race-related, you know, incidents and of, of police brutality, and black people are just being shot in the streets without cause or without, and and so we're sorry that we didn't recognize it was so bad, and um, and I guess I felt this sense in which how why is this now that you're so outraged? What about the rest of history? Um, uh, how much how how aware are you uh, about? the nature of how deeply penetrating racism is in culture. And it's convenient for you to now seem so outraged and want me to lecture you and so on. So there was this, uh, there was a sense in which I felt like I wanted to write this song to sort of tell them off really. And, you know, when, you know, so that's why I said in the first verse, when did you realize that we were in trouble? You know, when did you actually open up your eyes to the reality of, uh, of, of racism and, you know, what did it actually take for you to, to listen to what we have been trying to say? And why does it have to get to this point that it, someone has to die before, before it matters. And, you know, and I think my 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 headspace was again. I had not written a song about this. This was the first song I was trying that I felt I wanted to articulate this this frustration. Creativity has always been an outlet for me. It's always been a, a catharsis, a way for me to just kind of express what's on my heart. And and I'd been prior to that, it's just been going on social you know social media, just typing long essays and. <laughs> having a go at everybody um about about my kind of newfound sense of urgency to uh, to fight racism everywhere um so the song really was a, was an expression of that but but um you know and then the second verse again this you know me asking this rhetorical question when when did you notice that my life didn't matter of course um as it relates to black lives matter what were you doing all this time and again it's this sense in which you know, i felt like the need to bring this song here and i didn't really the song a song remained in demo mode and that's what you all heard just me playing my guitar in my room with a phone recording it um but there's a sense in which i felt that 
all white people are sort of complicit for their silence, complicit for, um, you know, somehow not being, uh, if, if, even if they hadn't said something about the latest case that was in the news, that somehow they were doing so because they were um, complicit. Uh, and and it's, I look back at these words, and I'm sure if you've got any questions, I'll free, you know, feel free to, 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 to share, but I look back at them and I just think, wow, it, it's, um, I mean, certainly, I've moved uh, moved away from the views, but it's I, I think there's a lot of arrogance here that I, I felt that I needed to lecture them in this way. You you end the song with this verse. When was the first time that you noticed your color? Has it ever had you stopped by the police? When was the last time that you felt like a stranger in the land of the brave and the home of the free? Mm-hmm. Well, one thing that I thought was interesting about that last line was that that's a, a, a typically American slogan. Yeah. And for a Brit to say <laughs> that, I'm just a little curious, um, you know, that sort of American spirit of freedom and courage, which I talked a lot about in the last episode on freedom. T- tell me a little bit about how that American spirit has sort of seeped into your British experience. For for a Brit to use that line, having not really lived there, I think there's some questions someone could say that, but I, you know, question that. But I think now when I look back, I, I I think what we need to be able to do as as the world is 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 realize the the tendency to um towards making these ideas um th- these ideas of okay, some people are are incarcerated by by you know by history and can't progress and can't um develop um you know a, a life that is worthwhile living that they can enjoy and thrive that it's it's a toxic self-defeating um way of thinking and it creates much more problems than it solves we think always somehow giving people this idea to hold on to will make them it's not going to make them uh, better. It's not going to make them grab a hold of the opportunity of the American opportunity or anywhere else. And and that's why I speak out about it. That's why I can turn around and say, the sentiment of the song. I don't. I don't hold to it. I think you know. I think um. I would love to rewrite it to be honest, because I think outrage as an idea um sells. I think I, I tweeted something about that. It's like it's become an industry and a um. Um, of its own, and perhaps use the same kind of uh, lyrics and uh, sorry, same melody to reconstruct the song to say to to kind of criticize or extreme tendency towards social outrage and the way that that can be disruptive. If you if you could rewrite the lyrics to the song, and it sounds like you might do that, what message would you want it to communicate? The same, let's say, the same melody, the same instrumental but a different message what mm. two two and a half years later what would be the message the message perhaps that i would try to convey with this is the the subtle danger of just being led by um by sort of emotional or uh, social outrage uh, and and the ways the ways in which you might not see how it 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 can kind of override the sense of of truth the sense of the bigger picture um the sense of the opportunity for um you know camaraderie conversation 
uh, around addressing the issues. There are injustices in the world. There are, um, you know, and some of those are racial or prejudices of some kinds between ethnicities. There are social issues. Poverty is an issue that's there to my heart. I mentioned my grandmother. Um, you know, a part of the, I know part of the solution to poverty is education. Um, you know, the more opportunities that people have to get an education, they'll be able to get themselves out of poverty. So there are real problems, the real solutions. And while anger should not be entirely demonized, I've learned that that sense in which an outrage is almost like anger on steroids. It's almost this sense in which you, 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 I don't think we are our best and we give ourselves the greatest opportunity to address the problems that we have in the world if we're constantly in a state of outrage. So let me close by playing your song, Outrage. And before I play it, I'd like to read one last Thomas Sowell quote to leave you uh, with something to think about. Quote, many issues are misconstrued, not because they are too complex for most people to understand, but because a mundane explanation is far less emotionally satisfying than an explanation which produces villains to hate and heroes to exalt, end quote. Dr. Joel Brown, thank you so much for joining me on the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. Here's your song, Outrage. When did you realize that we were in trouble? When did you open up your eyes? What did it take for you to sit up and listen? Why does it always cost our lives? When did you notice that my life didn't matter? What were you doing all this time? What were the excuses that stopped you from talking? What were the program talking like? Yeah. What were the program talking like? What will you do now that you see it's all rotten? What will the outrage do this time? Will it really matter or will it all be forgotten? Is it just another showdown with our lives on the line? When was the first time that you noticed your color? Has it ever had you stop by the police? Yeah. Uh, when was the last time that you felt like a stranger? In the land of the brave, in the home of the free. Yeah, yeah. In the land of the brave, in the home of the free. What will you do now that you see it's all right? What will the outrage do this time? Yeah. Will it really matter, or will it all be forgotten? Is it just another showdown with our lives on the line? Mm-hmm.
I earn enough money for medicine. I don't need to pay. I don't need any of this because I genuinely just care about this stuff so much. Like I really feel this conversation, these conversations need to happen. We are at an urgent point where, where if we don't get a chance, I think we're, I think we're at a tipping point. And I know that's cliche, but I really think that if we don't push back and, and, and give legitimate, articulate, nuanced, intelligent responses to the madness, we're just going to see it continue to just, just, you know, swallow up uh, society. Uh, and I think that that would be tragic. This has been episode 28 of the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. I'm Alan Wolin. Thanks for listening.